Well, I hope you all had a Merry Christmas this past week. Um, considering the, everything that's been going on, I would have preached this sermon last week. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that we're going to have a good time looking into the scriptures together. I'm going to continue a message that I began, when was that, three weeks ago? Talking about this um, hymn, this Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, we had gone through a couple verses just seeing Jesus, uh, seeing the scriptures portrayed throughout this song. Um, and it's really a, a sermon in a song form. Let me just read through some of the, some of the lyrics here. Um, I'm going to read the first two verses, which are probably a couple of the most familiar verses. And then I'm going to read the verse that we're going to be looking at today. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And then this is verse number four, technically. In, in our hymnals, you only get verses one through three, but there are two additional verses to this carol um, that we don't have in our hymnal. And one of those verses I'm going to be walking through today, pointing out the scriptures that are related to what um, Charles Wesley and George Whitfield were writing in this hymn. It says, Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruined nature, now restore. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. There's not a whole lot of Christmassy feel there, right? You don't hear about jingle bells and, and things like that. But in this, this is the Christmas story. This is what Jesus came to do. And we're going to be walking through some of these elements today together. Before we do, we'd like to seek the Lord's wisdom in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for always being good to us, no matter what. While we were yet sinners, you sent your only begotten Son to come to be the propitiation for our sins so that we can be restored back to you through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And even at our lowest point, Lord, you reached out in love to us and you claimed us as your own. And even at points in our life still since then, where we feel like we're at our lowest, we are never lower than when we were, when we were still unbelievers, when we were still lost in our sin. We are never lower than that. And that is when you gave us your great act of love, when we were at our lowest and most despicable point. And Lord, help us to remember your love, that we will never be that low again, even though we may feel that way. Because you have saved us, you have sanctified us, you have given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to have confidence in what you have given to us and what you have promised to us. And let our eyes be always on our Savior, Jesus Christ. For all things, you will never leave us nor forsake us. 
If you went to such lengths to save us from our sins, how much more will you do to keep us in your favor, according to your own sovereign will and plan? I pray that we would see Jesus high and lifted up in the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turning your Bibles with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to deal with the first line here that said, Come, desire of nations, come. Desire of nations. Isn't that kind of a weird Christmas term? Desire of nations. The nations desired him. In the, in the scriptures, we don't really see a whole lot of people desiring God. We see a whole lot of people doing the opposite. Not desiring Him, not following Him, not seeking Him, not believing in Him. But here, the line says, come desire of nations, come. Where in the world does, do Wesley and Whitfield get that from? Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 2, shows us a little sneak peek into this. Um, it reads, well, let's start in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So here, Isaiah is seeing something. It is becoming tangible to him. It is becoming real to him. He's not imagining something. He's not hoping for something. He is seeing something happen. That's prophecy, right? A prophet sees something happening that may not be happening right now, but will happen. But he's seeing it because God is showing it to him. This is what will come to pass. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, what's the imagery here with this mountain being lifted up? That is a, it's an image of glorification. It's an image of magnification. When there's something important, you try to give attention to it, right? Have you ever, has anybody ever gone on a trip where they were in an area that had mountains? Raise your hand if you have. Have you ever been to the mountains, right? Now, if you're driving on a, on a road and there are mountains in the distance. Can you miss that? <laughs> Can you really miss that? You just drive by and you, know, you, get, you get to where you're going and, and, and then another passenger in your car says, did you see those mountains? And you're like, eh, I didn't see them. <laughs> you cannot miss mountains. <laughs> they're huge, they're beautiful, they're textured, there's depth, it's just amazing. My sister lives in Montana, and sometimes she'll post pictures on Facebook, and you, you, you can't, I mean, if you're taking a picture outside where they live, there's going to be a mountain in the background. <laughs> you can't not see it. It's just there. You can't miss a mountain. And that's kind of what the idea here is, is that one day, God and his ways are going to be glorified in a manner that you just can't miss it. It's going to be clear. It's going to be obvious. In verse 3, it said, the end of verse 2 says, all nations are going to flow to it. In verse 3, it says, and many people shall come and say, 
Now, when it says in many peoples, it's talking about nations. It's not just talking about Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, peoples, ethnicities. That's what the, it's talking about here. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So when these people are saying, let us go to the house of the God of Jacob, that's, ter- that's Gentile terminology, to the God of Jacob. Back in the day, there were plenty, there were, the Gentile nations had all their own gods. You know, the gods of the Assyrians, the gods of the Greeks, the gods of you know, the Romans. But here, the people, all the nations are seeing the God of Jacob being high and lifted up. The ways of the God of Jacob are the ways that they want to go and learn more about because they are the true ways. Remember when um, Joshua, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? Um, and he sent spies into the land and um, these two spies um, went into the house of Rahab. And Rahab told these two spies that their whole town trembles in fear of the people of Israel because they have, they, I mean, this, I mean, years, decades ago, they had conquered Egypt, so to say. They had plundered Egypt. They had heard about the dividing of the Red Sea. And they've never seen any other God do something like that. So all of Jericho is trembling because now these people who had such a powerful God were on their doorstep. What do they think was supposed to happen? Were they going to be able to defend themselves? Probably not. That's why the whole town was trembling. Because they knew what the God of Israel could do. They had heard the stories, and those stories had been passed down even in the Gentile nations for decades. And that was at least 40 years ago (laughs) prior to that. And they're still trembling because of it. Because of the greatness of the God of the people of Israel, who is our God, might I add. And this... In Isaiah, he is seeing a prophecy of a time when all the nations are going to see the God of Israel and they're going to want him. They're going to want to follow him. They're going to want to know him and learn of him and learn of his ways. They're going to put their idols aside and come and convert over to this real true Yahweh. This is a prophecy that Isaiah is seeing will come to pass. And we see this further in Zechariah chapter 8, if you want to follow me there. If you don't know where Zechariah is, that's fine. You don't have to follow me. I'll just read it. It's kind of one of those Old Testament books that we don't always go to, so sometimes it's kind of hard to flip to. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20. The scriptures say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So here we see again a a prophecy of the, the desire of nations. This is fulfilled when Jesus comes. 
We see, the, we see it starting to unfold when you see the wise men come from, a, come from the east. They had no ties to Jerusalem, but they went to Jerusalem seeking the newborn king when the Jews weren't seeking him. The Jews weren't looking for the newborn king, but people from the east were from the Gentile nations. They were, they were coming. That's like, they were like the first fruits of these prophecies coming true. Those magi, the Gentiles, forsaking their land as Abraham did at one point to go and seek the promise, not the promised land, but the promised Messiah. The Gentiles, the first fruits of these prophecies coming true. And you can read through that account, but they were excited to find this king. Just as in Zechariah, as he's prophesying, these people sound excited, saying, Ten men from, every, from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew. Say, you know, the Jew is walking in these Gentiles, just picture in the, in, on the streets, the, these Gentiles are just grabbing hold of them. Hey, wait for me. I want to come with you. I want to go learn about your God. Because we've heard about him. We've heard that he is mighty and he is strong and he is compassionate and he is merciful. We want to know this God. Ultimately, this comes to pass when the Lord Jesus Christ is born. Ephesians chapter 2, if you'd like to go with me. Ephesians chapter 2. And might I also add here that he's the desire of the nations. I've mentioned this before. But raise your hand if you're a Gentile. <laughs> if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. <laughs> okay? These prophecies coming true means salvation for you and me. If these prophecies didn't come true, there would be no salvation for you and me. If the covenants of promise remained with the Jews in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple, you and I would have no hope. But because these prophecies have come true, we have hope. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, we read, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, okay, so in the Jewish tradition, uncircumcised people had absolutely no business with the Jews. Circumcision was the sign that you were of God's people. Now you could be a Gentile and convert and be circumcised, but the circumcision was the conversion. But here it says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Okay, so there's the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a separation there. You had no part in the Jewish way, in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish God. By which, by which is made in, in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See that? This is all tying into what we were reading from Isaiah and Zechariah, that in Christ there is no longer a distinction between Jews and Gentiles because the, tra- the ceremonial traditions have been done away with and we all join in and become citizens and the people of God in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Not through circumcision, not through keeping a particular list of traditions. It is through the name of Jesus Christ alone that there is no more dividing wall. There is no more separation. God is not excluding anybody from his love and his mercy and his work. Continue, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He's talking about circumcision specifically in this context and other of those ceremonial procedures that only Jews could participate in. There were plenty of procedures in the Old Testament law that Jews could not participate in. I'm not going to dive into all those things because we have plenty of things to talk about here. But Gentiles simply could, even if they wanted to follow Yahweh, and forsake their own idols, they could only do so much. There was, there was a lot of things that they simply could not participate in because they were Gentiles. And these things were given to the Jews to show God's special favor upon them. But we see here, but in Christ, the favor of God is spread to the whole world. So that he might, and this is the last part of verse 15, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, okay? Again, you're no longer far off. You're not strangers. You're not aliens. You're not, you know, the fringe anymore, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Whereas once in the Old Testament, the household of God was Israel. But now everybody's being brought into the household of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now he continues this. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so now he's telling the Gentiles that you are, at one point, you couldn't enter the temple because you weren't allowed to according to the law, but now you're being built into a temple. You are becoming God's temple. Beautiful. A symbol of restoration and love and mercy and acceptance of God. You are becoming the temple. The thing that you used to not have any part in. Now, it's, now you are that. Not only that, not only are you a temple, because even in the Old Testament, there were points where God said, my, my presence is departing from the temple because of your rebellious ways. But the temple was still there. It was still beautiful. People still went there to sacrifice and to seek the favor of the Lord, even though God's presence was not always there because of their rebelliousness. Not only that, but in here in verse <clears throat> Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Not only are you citizens of the household of God, not only are you the temple now, God is also dwelling in you. Something that was completely unheard of to a Jew. This stuff doesn't happen. This is only for the Jews. Even for the Jews, it was rare to see the Holy Spirit actually indwelling somebody for their life. It was only for special people with special um, anointings. But now, this is for all the people, Jews and Gentiles. How? The desire of nations has come. Jesus. It's all by the blood of Jesus. And then... The song continues, fix in us thy humble home. Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to stay here, just this last part here that I have already read and talked about. I don't need to labor on this anymore, but you see here, he's fixing in us his humble home. In verse 22, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And doubtless, this passage was on um, Whitfield's and um, Wesley's mind when they were writing this. Because God is making us His home, His dwelling place. Also in John 1.14, we can see a flavor of this. When the, script, when the Scriptures say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came and was born of Mary, He dwelt among us. See, God was once afar off, now he's, being, now he's coming near. And now he's not just near, but now he's within us. Dwelling not just among us, but within us. By the Spirit of God who dwells within us. All beginning with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Moving on. Rise, rise, the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Perhaps some of you recognize that terminology from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, there's a big fancy word for it. I'm going to have a pop quiz. But there's Genesis chapter 3, this passage is called the Proto-Evangelion. <laughs> Write that down because I'm going to, no, not really, I'm not going to quiz you on it. Um, it's one of those words we learn in college. Um, means the first gospel. And this is the first um, time we see the promise of a Savior. Or the first time the gospel is really hinted at in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, this is, this is after Adam and Eve had sinned, God is starting to curse, uh, give, divvy out the curses to the serpent, to, the, to Eve, to Adam. Um, and here, he is cursing the serpent, in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's weird terminology if you're just simply talking to a snake, right? That's a really weird curse. I mean, how many times have you gotten really mad at somebody, and you said, I'm going to put enmity between you and a woman, and put your and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's just a really weird curse because it's prophetic. It's looking forward to some time when God was going to restore things that have been broken here in Genesis. That's why it's called the first gospel because it's the first look at a promise, a prophecy where God is going to restore. He's going to conquer Satan. He's going to restore what has been broken. 
That's part of the gospel. The, part of the, the, the whole gospel has a lot in it. And we, it's a lifelong journey to learn it all. It's not simply Jesus came to save you from your sins. That's part of it. That's a very important part of it. But another part is, God has not just come to, re, to save you from your sins, but to restore everything that was broken because of sin. Everything. And this is part of the gospel here in verse, chapter 3, verse 15. Now, we, we see some of this in Hebrews chapter 2. If, um, you can turn there if you want. Hebrews chapter 2 will help us discuss this prophecy. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 say... Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So this is, I mean, this is showing what the devil did, right? The serpent was symbolic of the devil, whether he was possessed or however that worked out. Um, in, Genesis, in the Genesis account, the devil worked to destroy the relationship that Eve and Adam had with God, <clears throat> putting enmity between them and God, right? And God curses the serpent for his deceptive ways, for his, for his sin, and says, you know what, a day is going to come when you and your ways are going to be destroyed, and there in Hebrews chapter 2, he's saying that when Jesus came, Jesus took on body. This is the Christmas part, because when we talk about Jesus coming and being born of Mary, this is God, who is a spirit, taking on flesh so that he could do something to fulfill what was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. So that through death, right, Jesus came so that he could die he couldn't do that unless he had put on a body. Jesus came so that he might die. And through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. And that's why the resurrection is so important. Because it shows that he actually defeated death. Therefore, therefore claiming victory over the great power of the devil. Because the devil is the father of death. Death came because of His work in the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that He conquered the power of death. That is, the, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And not only conquering Him, but also because He conquered Him, He delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So He has... Not only conquered Satan, but also he's unraveling everything that his work did in the world. That's why Wesley and Whitfield say, Arise, the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. In other words, they're saying, conquer the devil's work. And then he says, now display thy saving power. Hebrews, just a few pages over. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says... Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
Not only does Christ's resurrection show that he conquered death and the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, but not only that, because he resurrected, he's living, making intercession for us. He is our go-between, right? We have one mediator between us and God, Christ Jesus. The apostles are not our mediators. Mary is not our mediator. We have one intercessor, the one who stands up for us in the presence of God. Because he was once a man, he died, he rose again, so that we could have salvation from the sins that we were subject to our whole lives long. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for us. That's why we have salvation in no other name. Because there is no other name who is, that is always making intercession for us. There is no other name whereby we must be saved because there's nobody else who can stand before the Father saying, I made an appropriate sacrifice for that person's sins. That's what it means when, that's part of what it means when it says Jesus is making intercession for us. He is always telling the Father, this person is clean. They are cleansed because my blood has been applied to their sins. They are no longer guilty for their sins. They are clean. There is no hostility between them and us anymore because of what I did. No other person in all creation can say that to the Father. That's why we must only come through the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. There are not many ways to the top of the hill. There are not many ways to God. There is one way, Jesus, because He is the only one who can legitimately make intercession for us before the Father. Because He is the only one who made a legitimate act of atonement for our sins. Nobody else did. No, I mean, even if you look at other religions, no other religion really claims that anybody else did. Only the Bible talks about that. There is no other way. So that's why they're calling upon God, display thy saving power. Remember the mountain that we were talking about? That's the mountain. Display thy saving power to the world. That's why Jesus says, I must be lifted up. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that we can have healing. And the nations can look at it and see, I want to go to that. I have heard of the God of Israel. Now He has welcomed all nations. And I want to go. And I want to grab hold of anybody who's going that way. Because I want them to take me there. So that I can know what they know. So that I can have what they have. He continues, ruined nature, now restore. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though once we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Now, some of us, we, we stop there, and if we really think about it, wait, I thought the new creation was coming in the future. But now Paul is saying, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Because the old creation, mean, we must be a new creation, because the old creation was defiled. The old creation was doomed to destruction. So if we are still an old creation, if we are still just the same old Adam and Eve trying to fix everything, well, we're all in the same boat that the Israelites were in when they couldn't fix anything (laughs) through the keeping of the law. No, we had to be made new because everything that we once were was not capable of salvation. So he's saying, if anyone is in Christ Jesus... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. Now, I'm not saying that there's no future prophecies we're looking toward. That's not the point. But what we need to also recognize is it's happening. Every time a believe, somebody comes to faith in Christ, the new creation is working. It's happening. It's spreading. Because the Bible says so. Not because it's my interpretation of events. It's because Paul just said it right here. If you put your faith in Jesus, you become a new creation. The old stuff passes away. All things become new. Paul just said it. It's not confusing in the least. Verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, okay, what's this ministry of reconciliation? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ... Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a picture of what the new creation is. You and I become something that we weren't. We are the righteousness of God himself. It doesn't matter how proud you are. You can never say, yeah, I made myself just as righteous as God. Nobody could ever say that. Even the most proud of us could never say that. Remember when Jesus said, whoever has not sinned, cast the first stone? Even those proud, egotistical, self-righteous Pharisees dropped their stones. (laughs) They knew they hadn't attained the righteousness of God and had no sin. Paul is saying, in Christ, he has made us new, clean, Righteous just like God is, guiltless just like God is, because Jesus took away all of our sins. There's no longer any impurity that God holds against us because God took out his wrath on it in Jesus. There's no more wrath that needs to be divvied out for those who put their faith in Jesus. Only for those who put their faith in Jesus, not in what they're trying to make of themselves. That's the hard thing, right? We always want to make something of ourselves. We want to feel important. We want to feel useful. We want to feel right. We want to feel just. So we go to great lengths to format our lives in such a way that 
well, we feel blameless. That's self-righteousness. If you're trying to do that for, so that God could accept you. That's self-righteousness and that's condemning. Because the Bible has shown us the way. Christ is the one who makes us righteous. Not you and your piety, your strict adherence to laws and regulations and traditions. Only Jesus can fulfill all righteousness. Now moving on to this la- these last two lines. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and, thou- and ours to thine. Now the first has... Now ruined nature must be destroyed in order for this mystic union to take place because God tells us, do not be unequally yoked. Therefore God cannot be unequally yoked. So He has to make us like him, in order to yoke himself to us. Therefore, now in mystic union join, so mystic, this is mysterious, that we don't understand how all this stuff works. We can't understand how God could join himself to us when we're not even supposed to be unequally yoked with another human being that we're like. But yet God has made us in such a way that he can join himself to us and not be unequally yoked. (laughs) That's mystical. That's out of this world. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. John chapter 17 spelt Jesus. This is Jesus talking. Who better to read from in this mysterious (laughs) situation? What better authority do we need to make sure that we can know that this this is really something that we can believe in? John 17 verse 20 says... I'll give you a second here. John 17, verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's not talking about just the disciples. He's praying this for everybody who would put their faith in him in all generations. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Jesus, in Jesus, we are brought into fellowship and unity with the triune Godhead. Do you see that there? Do you see that? We are yoked to God. Perfectly one. And then he's saying we represent that by being one with each other. I mean, think about it. God has yoked himself to us. If we can't yoke ourselves to each other, how can the world can we say we're representing God's love and His mercy, His forgiveness, His grace, His compassion, His humility? Now, this isn't necessarily about you and me, but we need to see this. This is why unity, I mean, unity amongst the brotherhood 
is a very important theme throughout all the scripture, throughout all the New Testament. It's everywhere. All the apostles talk about it. Some more than others. I mean, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, so he talks about it more. <laughs> but all the apostles talk about it. Unity is a huge theme in the New Testament because it is more than anything else, more than your charitable acts, more than your, more, you know, all these other things that we can do as Christians. One thing that should be the foundation of all of it is we ought to be one with each other. We ought to love one another. We ought to show compassion and mercy and forgiveness. We should be ready to reconcile with each other. Because if we can't even do that, then how can we say that we know the unity that we have with God through Christ Jesus? If we can't understand this mystic union, even a little bit of, even a little bit of understanding this mystic union obliterates any offense that we are having a hard time with forgiving. Because God has, in His mercy... In His great and powerful forgiveness, He has obliterated any reason why He couldn't yoke Himself to us. Why He couldn't join Himself to us. He has gotten rid of it all because of Jesus Christ. And we look to God. We look to His great mercy. We bask in His compassion. And when we do that, when we are preaching this gospel to ourselves, reminding us of what Jesus has done... We go out there renewed, and we release offenses. We forgive. We reconcile. We say, you know what? They are a brother or a sister in Christ by faith. I love them. They may be wrong about something. They may have some problem. But don't we all have a problem? Don't, are you right about everything? No. We're, yeah, Kirk is. Kirk's right about everything. <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, we'll have a quiz later on. <laughs> um, but we must look to the Scriptures. We must open our minds to see. We must pray that God will open our spirits, that we may see more of what Jesus has done for us, because it transforms our lives. It glorifies God when we glorify Christ because of what He has done especially when we're doing it on a mountaintop so that others may see it. Yes, we must bask in it in our closets when we're praying, when we're reading, taking great joy in the things that God has told us and given to us and promised to us. But we also need to take that and let the world see what God has done. That's why, I mean, that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, you be reconciled to God. He's going out there and he's saying, all of y'all, we've been reconciled to God. God has given us reconciliation with the Son of God. Be reconciled to Him. It's free. Believe in Jesus. Come to Him. Come to know Him. I've received it. I have been brought into this mystic union. I in Him and Him in me. I don't understand why God would do that, but He's done it, and I want you to be part of it too. That's what evangelism is. Evangelism isn't just getting somebody to agree with you about some philosophical, religious thing. Evangelism is, I've received grace from God. It's offered to you too. You want it? Here you go. Let me show you. It's in Jesus. 
Here's what Jesus came to do. And that's why the incarnation or the birth of Jesus is important because Jesus came to do these things. He took on flesh to do these things. And now we, in our flesh, we represent God in the flesh, making God making his appeal through us. They can be reconciled to him, just the same as you and me can. Or are we just special? Everybody else has way bigger problems. They need special help. I needed special help. That's why Jesus died. They already got the special help. The same help that we got. Jesus died for their sins. Yeah, we need to help them overcome their sins. But Jesus died for those sins while they were still a sinner. Not so that he could make a way for them to become acceptable through a 12-step program. But so that he could cleanse them from their sins today. Granting them forgiveness. Forgiveness is release. Forgiveness is not payback. Forgiveness is not a process for payback. Forgiveness is release. I release. God has released us of guilt because he already knew we could not overcome it. We could not expiate our own guilt. And he gives us the power to walk uprightly as we continue to seek him as we continue to dwell on the gospel that He has given us. And that is all I want to say to you today, is I just want you to see Jesus Christ glorified. I'm not going to try to give you some, something to go apply. I just want you to see Jesus. Just like we started here, does the desire of nations, He has been lifted up on a mountaintop. So look to Him and go to Him. And as you go to Him, you will find Him, because if you... Search for me with all your heart, you will find me, God has said. And God has made it pretty clear. It's right here. You have it available. I mean, I've, how many times have I said, the Bible is right here. And if you have a hard time with this, let me help you. Let someone in here that you trust help you. But it's here. The answers are here. The guidance is here. Jesus has been lifted up. The desire of nations has come. He has fixed in us His humble home. He, the woman's conquering seed has risen and bruised the serpent's head. He has displayed His saving power. He has restored our ruined nature. And He has mystically joined us to the nature of God. He did that. And that's something we can see in this, in this carol that we sing every year. But have we seen the profundities that are packed away in these verses? Let these remind us. I mean, plenty of songs. You look through the hymnal, there's plenty of songs that do this. I mean, if the, if the hymns you're singing aren't really pointing you to the scriptures, then it's probably not a hymn worth singing. <laughs> it's not really a hymn, it's just a song. But see Jesus, high and lifted up. Glorify Him. Bask in His compassion and His forgiveness. And remember what God has done by sending Jesus into the, in the flesh, born of Mary, so that He could be the Savior of the world. God, I thank You for all the things that You have done for us, the countless things that You have done for us. And even if we can count them, they are yet measureless in, in their depth 
and their width and their height. Though we see Jesus born in a manger, we see stories of what He has done here on this earth. We can see them, but the depth of them are profound. And we could talk of them all the day long. I just pray, Lord, that Jesus would be glorified in our hearts, that we might devote ourselves to His ways now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.